You're listening to our Great Divorce Podcasts, where we walk through one of C.S. Lewis's greatest works and discuss practically what it means for our lives today. This podcast was produced by St. Andrew in Plano, Texas. The theme song you're hearing is Shadow to Sunlight by Micah Peacock. For more information about our church and the different ministries we provide, or to find other podcasts we have produced, we invite you to visit standrewumc.org or join us for worship on Sunday mornings. Well, we continue today in the ninth chapter of The Great Divorce for us. This is the only chapter that we have not gotten through in one session, and we'll see if we get through this in two sessions as we continue today. We were excited about coming back to this chapter because this chapter is the one of the book that, one, explains the craziness of all the story that we've heard up till this point, but two, explains the brokenness and sin in the world. If you want to like one chapter to like explain why everything in the news is bad and why we also are messed up, but could do something better, it's this chapter right here. Is it your favorite chapter for us? I think it is. I told Arthur, I think this is probably one of the better chapters of any book, any non-Bible book that's out there. And I have to clarify with that. Why do you have to caveat the Bible? Is this not easier to read than even the Bible itself? There's parts. Or is that blasphemy? I feel, I feel like there's some parts of this book where I'm stuck in Leviticus. <laughs> That's right. But then there's glimpses. There's some easier parts. We have a joke in our small group that if you're going to read the Bible from the beginning to the end, you have to get a running start when you get to Leviticus because it just is pretty rough. And frankly, that is why probably we're doing this podcast. If they started with chapter nine with the interesting stuff about heaven and hell and all that, I think people would have read more of this book. That's what I was thinking. If you can get people to read through chapter nine, there's no way they're not finishing the book and they're going to get what they came for out of chapter nine. All right. So we're going to dive in. We talked about purgatory in the last session. We talked about how this book merges Catholic and Protestant philosophies around what happens in heaven and hell and purgatory and all the rest of that. And also the concept of retrospective vision. The choice is really what's in front of us today and the choice that we get to make. And so, George, the solid person who's our guide, says, Milton was right. The choice of every lost soul can be expressed in the words, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. John Milton, the Paradise Lost. There are quite a few shout outs in here, aren't there, Forrest? But he actually got that line as a, a, a twist on a line by Davy Crockett about I'd rather be a fence post in Texas than the king of Tennessee. Okay, that's so, fair. Do you think that Davy Crockett stole that from John Milton? I think so. Evidently. Or vice versa. Sure. I don't know the timing of all these. Davy Crockett was after John Milton. So, but better to reign in hell than serve in heaven is utterly fascinating because it is a hard thing for us to process why people end up in hell. I remember even recently I was on Facebook and there was a preacher's wife who I know who was talking about heaven and hell. And her difficulty with God was the idea that God would send people to hell. God would make people and say, man, you deserve to go to hell. But that's not at all what we have in the great divorce. It is actually the choice that people make almost all the time, maybe not almost all the time, but more times than they should, 
would be to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. And that that's a choice that we tend to make. And frankly, is at the core of the great divorce. And my own philosophy about heaven is God doesn't want anyone in hell. The whole point of Jesus dying on the cross, rising from the grave and trying to redeem the whole world is that people would actually choose heaven over hell, but some people would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. Getting back to just overall framing of chapter nine, you feel like this chapter is what C.S. Lewis was trying to write. And he, had to, he wrote everything before this chapter to get to this chapter. I do think this is his basic philosophy that he tries to get across in everything, but it's so hard to explain. I mean, even saying it's better to reign in hell than serve in heaven feels philosophical and murky when actually it's the most practical thing that we choose. Lewis has a quote in a different book where he talks about children choosing to play mud pies in the dirt rather than playing the beach a block over. That's how he views people's choices time and time again. It says there is always something they prefer to joy. That is to reality, which I love that framework, by the way, because there's a whole lot of discussion about what's real and what's not and what reality is and what truth is. And particularly when we live in a world that likes to declare that we're in the post-truth era or the post-reality era, or now you have you know Mark Zuckerberg pitching a metaverse, which is fundamentally not reality itself. Here you have C.S. Lewis's expectation that joy actually equals reality. They are, in fact, synonyms. I don't know if it's because I was reading this chapter thinking about today, or, but this morning on my way to drop my five-year-old Caleb off at school, and he was screaming at me in the car. And I told him, I said, Caleb, you can choose to be happy right now. <laughs> he said, no, I can't. I said, yeah, you actually can. You can choose to smile. And it was this really funny conversation. I think it was because of this line, right? Well, I mean, he continues with, it says, you see it easily enough in a spoiled child that would rather sooner miss its play and its supper than say it was sorry and be friends. Yep. It's the idea that, frankly, I want to take my toys and go home. I'd rather play with my toys by myself than share them and actually play with my friends. In life, it has a hundred fine names. It says Achilles' wrath, revenge and injured merit, self-respect, tragic greatness, proper pride. See, here's what's funny is he says these things like self-respect, and in every other context, that's a good thing, right? Do you have enough self-respect? When we were growing up, Forrest, it was like the self-esteem era. I mean, we got participation trophies, for which I blame boomers, by the way. The boomer generation gave us the participation trophies they mock us for now. But it was all because they had this entire philosophy. We ought to have proper self-esteem. Except in the Christian sense, you also ought to have proper shame proper regret and humility. There's a different bit that thinking you're amazing at everything is not actually the best way forward in all circumstances. I got a sermon series idea for you. Okay, shoot. You have a sermon series and those are the titles of each of your sermons. Achilles' Wrath, whatever that other He was is. a Roman general. Uh, Shakespeare wrote a play about him. Injured merit, self-respect. Tragic. Not Achilles, by the way, but Coriolanus. There's a whole word that Forrest didn't yeah. read there. Keep going. Tragic greatness and proper pride. That'd be a good sermon series, That'd right? That'd be a great sermon series. See, this is how it works, people. <laughs> we'll see this next summer. It'll be a summer series. It says, Lewis asks George, his guide through this, is no one lost through like normal sins, like mere sensuality? And here's the framework that, uh, that he sets up is, yes, that happens, but most of the times people are trying for something good when they end up choosing help. Most of the times it comes on when you're craving something. Soon we're going to approach the issue of lust. And, you know, lust is actually 
you're seeking companionship, joy, relationship, like sex. God made sex to be a great thing and end up finding lust out of it. It's not just the mere sensuality. There's actually a goal there. Proper pride or self-respect is understanding our internal value. But it's not just when we're broken people, but when we're just bent a little, when we think, well, I'm good enough for this. I deserve this. And then it's not like God is sitting there tempting you with bad things. It's that oftentimes we turn the things that God has in mind and we just twist it enough that it actually breaks us. Here it says, I think Forrest, you liked this bit, which I want you to talk about for a minute, but it says, the time comes when pleasure becomes less and less and the craving fiercer and fiercer. And though he knows that joy can never come that way, he prefers joy to the mere fondling of unappeasable lust and would not have it taken away from him. He would fight to the death to keep it. He'd like well to be able to scratch, but even when he can scratch no more, he'd rather itch than not. There's this desire within us that even when we know it's not good for us, we keep wanting it. We don't want to actually be healed from our brokenness or our mess or whatever it is. Even when he can scratch no more, he'd rather itch than not. Even when it doesn't even do anything for you, you can think of like any addiction or anything that somebody's struggling with, food to every other thing you could struggle with. That is such a, a real human thing that we, forget, we pick it. We pick it. We choose it to forget the reason why we actually were doing it in the first place. Yep. It's like marriage. Very few people get married expecting it not to work, right? They get married for the aspirational reasons of marriage, but then it just becomes something you do rather than something you keep striving towards. You lose the purpose of the marriage vows itself, and it just becomes a, a husk of it. He tells a story here of a guy who, on his earthly life, he was interested in nothing but survival, and then he gets to heaven and can't survive because he's just living. There's no surviving. Nothing's going to kill you once you're dead. And he loses all purpose and meaning and value. It's like the dog that caught the bumper and didn't know what to do with it. Too often, we keep striving after something, and we think that's what we were going for. And a lot of my conversations with particularly business leaders there are a lot of things that we strive for, right? You go to school for 18 years and then you go to school even longer and then you work and you sacrifice and you risk and all of a sudden you've built something that you can't believe you've built. But then what do you do with it? You spent your entire life striving to like build this thing, but now you have it and it doesn't fulfill you. And it turns out that isn't actually what you were supposed to be searching for anyway, because the bank account doesn't service you, the respect, the power, whatever it is, there's never enough of that. And to uh, Lewis's phrase, the pleasure becomes less and less and the craving fiercer and fiercer, and it just becomes nothing in the end. I think that's when, particularly coming out of this COVID era, but a lot of people going through the self-actualization of, you know, what am I? Like, I've done all this. I've you know, realized the success. How do I actually use that now? Like, what I, I'm at a point where I realized that wasn't the purpose. So what is the purpose and what can I do with what I've done to get there. It's really interesting though, like the survivalist, like he'd done all these things all over the world, like trying to figure out how to survive and he gets there and you don't need it. Like, I feel like there's gotta be some really cool analogy to that. Well, Lewis's examples are a lover of books with all his first editions and signed copies, but doesn't ever read them. You collect them. You're known for it. It becomes part of your identity, but you actually stop loving the thing that you loved in the first place. The big thing with kids today is like collecting like shoes, like high-end, like oh, tennis, yeah. like sneakers. Kicks. Yeah, kicks. And, but they never wear them. 
Like you just collect them and you trade them and you, you know. I never actually understood that with baseball cards, by the way. I know that's going to be heresy, particularly for Robert, who we work with, who, you know, has this huge legacy of baseball cards. But the whole point is just to stick them in a pouch and never touch them because you need them in mint condition. It's like a, what was it back in the 90s that they had that everyone collected? Uh, like the little stuffed doll oh, uh, animals? Uh, Beanie Babies. Yeah, Beanie Babies. <laughs> beanie Babies. Like Beanie Babies where you're like, I need the mint condition Beanie Baby. And like Don't now, play with that kid. <laughs> honestly, do you think God looks at us and our corporations and power and respect like we look at people in the 90s with Beanie Babies and go, oh, how pathetic. I just think there's this no desire No offense to have. all of you wonderful people out there who have great Beanie Baby collections. Do you think there are still people out oh, there yeah. with Beanie Baby I collections? I know one personally. <laughs> do you really? No offense Not a to family whoever member, it is that Forrest knows. You know who I'm talking about. Oh, to my friend, unknown friend who collects Beanie Babies, I apologize. Well, collecting is fine, but what's the purpose? I do think there's everything in our life where we lose the point of what we're actually going for. And the purpose that God is leading for is joy, is reality, is heaven, is actually pure joy. There is a, a joyous start to the collection of Beanie Babies. You know, when people started doing it, when they're, yeah, whatever sure. you're collecting, baseball cards or whatever, but at some point, to your point, you lose the purpose, and it becomes less than what it was when you started. So one of my favorite collecting stories, which I did not plan on telling you today, I didn't know we were going to go down the collection story, but my grandfather died before I was born, and he had a coin collection. And he actually went to a conference in the late 70s where they described what's your purpose going to be and what are you doing it for. And he actually sold his coin collection and took his family on a trip to Hawaii. And that was the last time they ever got together as a family before he died of a heart attack. I'm not kidding you. Like he sold his sacred coin collection because he looked at it and went, what was this for? And even today, the family will tell you that was sacred. Yeah. That was actually one of the best moments of their entire lives. And he died shortly after that of a heart attack. No one got to say goodbye to him, but they have this memory and they're so glad they have that memory rather than the coin collection. You talked about collecting baseball cards. I collected baseball cards growing up, but I think it was to spend time with my dad because he loved baseball cards. And I think that was like a vein there. But after a while, when you quit spending time with your dad and you're just collecting the cards, you kind of lose, you know, like that's. Well, and at the best, you bring your kid into it. You bring your friends into it. It becomes part of a communal yeah. element. It's actually putting the vision towards heaven. It's actually putting the vision towards turning everything into it. The point for the record for my friend who collects Beanie Babies, who I don't know <laughs> who it is, is the point of everything, whether your resources, whether your Beanie Babies, whether your coin collection, whether your heart, the point is to turn it towards God and not the object itself. Because when you focus on just the object, you miss it. Yeah. Here's the kind of phrase that I love in this about whether or not people go to heaven or hell and how that ends up working itself out. He goes, what about the people that never get in the bus at all? What about the people that never come? This is the question I've actually gotten a lot as a pastor about. What about people who don't know God? What about the people that don't know Jesus? What happens with that? And this is my favorite response. And it's Lewis says, everyone who wishes it does, never fear. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is opened. So that everything in our lives, like your companies, your friends, your families, your cars, whatever it is that you put your love and your heart and your devotion into, if the objects themselves are all you're going for and you never choose something better, 
Well, God will give it to you, but your cars with no one to go on a joyride with are worth nothing. Then in the story, a woman comes across them who is simply explaining and complaining about her life. And there's nothing bad in it. It's one of those things where you sit there and you think, you know, in all of our conversation about Beanie Babies or coin collections or whatever, there are real things that occupy our mind that aren't just stuff, but they're things that happen to us. And this is precisely what this woman has. So they tried doing this and they tried doing that and never quite worked out. And then there's this phrase of, oh, but you don't know, I was murdered, simply murdered, dear. And there's this entire bit where this woman is not bad or evil. She just is talking about all the things that never worked out for her in her life. The response of Lewis to George, the teacher, he says, I'm troubled because this unhappy creature doesn't seem to me to be the sort of soul that ought to be in danger of damnation. She's not wicked. She's only a silly, garrulous old woman who has got into the habit of grumbling and feels that a little kindness and rest and change would do her all right. And then he says another one of the most philosophically interesting phrases that may be what she still is. The whole question is whether she's a grumble or a grumbler. So you got this woman who's just complaining about her life. And the question is, is she still a person who happens to complain? Or have her complaints overtaken her so far and so much that all she is is a grumbler? Their passions, their whatever, have overtaken them to where they aren't really a soul themselves. All they have left is the ability to complain. That question of, do you become what you worship? I don't know where that phrase came from first. But it's one of those things that as pastors, we've talked about a number of times where whatever you worship, whatever you do, let's say you golf seven days a week. Let's say you collect Beanie Babies every day. We're really digging in on that one. <laughs> whatever it is you do, if you worship that money, wealth, resources, power, stuff, that's all you end up caring about. If that's all you're capable of, then you're no longer a person who loves those things. You're just a walking grumble. And that's the distinction for Lewis of who ends up in hell or heaven is, are you a person who happens to grumble? If that's true, then they'll be redeemed and freed and healed. Or have we lost all of our agency because we've only focused on something less than God? When I read this, the first thing I thought of was the movie Trolls. <laughs> There's these characters that are just like, wah, wah. Like they're the ones that eat the trolls. I've never seen Trolls. You've never seen Trolls? I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, you're about to. You kids are almost old enough. Anyways, that's what I thought of when I heard grumble because they're like this whole group of people that they're just walking around and want one the whole time. But the other thing is, uh, this is really interesting. I just did a, a mental health 101 course with our Beacon of Light training. And one of the things they talked about was people first language. Are they grumbling or are they a grumble? It's kind of that people first. Like, is that a mean person or is that person acting mean? Like, you know, it's kind of that, you know, is it a person first and then the action or is it? they are embodied by the action. It's the question of whether or not your issues have overtaken your entire life yes. and soul. So here's how he phrases it. We're going to end it today, which means that now chapter nine is three episodes. How Lewis would have wanted it. How be. Lewis would have wanted it to be. It is also one of the longest ones. Like he just keeps going. I think yeah. he's reading this and going, oh, I found it here. And this, I think is one of the pinnacle. How can there be a grumble without a grumbler? And he goes, the whole difficulty of understanding hell is that the thing to be understood is so nearly nothing. But you'll have had experiences. It begins with a grumbling mood and yourself is still distinct from it, perhaps criticizing it. And yourself in a dark hour may will that mood, embrace it. 
You can repent and come out of it, but there may come a day when you can do that no longer. There will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going forward like a machine. I think this encapsulates every bit of the great divorce and why I love it. Because when we choose literally anything but God itself, it can become a God to us and nothing satisfies. And so when he says that in the end, there are only two kinds of people, people who say thy will be done to God, or we are so focused on whatever it is in front of us that God says, okay, I guess you can have that instead of me. Your grumbles, your, your whines, your complaints, your whatever it is, your complaints. And this section of what in your life has overtaken your soul. Going back to that story we told in an earlier episode about Jane Fonda and Vietnam and my friend who said, I'm not going to hell for Jane Fonda. This is what it is. If your resentment over what someone else has done to you becomes all you can talk about and all you are, and you can't even wake up in the morning without thinking about that thing, repent. If all you can do is think about your wealth and your power or whatever it is, repent, which literally means turn around. Just stop doing the thing. Find out you that is distinct from whatever it is that you're worshiping that is less than God himself. That's actually what we're going to talk about next episode is who God is and what that means and actually the nature of hell. Got no place, but I know just why I'm here. Lift me out of the waste, keep me steady in the face of fear. I wanna swim in the deepest ocean. I wanna feel heaven come alive. I'm